Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to John chapter 14, and for those of you taking notes and want to title, it's Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled, is what we're going to title today. John chapter 14, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 through verse 11. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the father and it sufficeth us. And Jesus said unto him, have I been so long with you and you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the father. And how sayest thou then, show us the father? Believest thou not that I am in the father and the father in me? The words I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. And let's pray. Father, I just ask you to open your word up to us, Lord, that we can be encouraged today, and that we can know that you are a faithful God that we can trust, and that you will not leave us orphans, but that you'll be with us now, and you promise to come back and be with us that we can dwell with you in all eternity. And we thank you for these truths and ask you to make them real to us today in Jesus' name. So, you know, you can't really divorce chapter 14 from chapter 13. And the problem is, for those of you that have come to the Sunday night, how we got the Bible, the Bible was not originally written with chapters and verses. It was just one big, long, that's the way it was. So there was no chapter 13 and 14 originally. That was all added later. And so what you have going on here in chapter 14, the break that takes place between chapter 13 and 14 is we're breaking right in the middle of Jesus's upper room discourse, as it's called. It's actually a long discourse where he is in the upper room with his disciples and he's giving them his last words before his death. And it begins in chapter 13, verse 31, goes all the way through chapter 17. So you have to understand what's going on a little bit in chapter 13, which we're going to talk about some to fully appreciate the opening statement, let not your heart be troubled, that he has in 14.1. Jesus tells his disciples, don't you have a troubled heart? But the exact same word, troubled, was talked about about the Lord Jesus Christ three times in John's gospel prior to this. In other words, he himself was dealing with a troubled heart. And the first time it happened is in John eleven thirty three when he's going to raise Lazarus and he sees Mary weeping and all the people weeping. And it says he groaned and it says his heart was troubled. And the second time it happened was over in chapter 12 in verse 27 when he's thinking about, I got this crucifixion coming up and all of the pressure and weight and bearing the sins of the world are coming on him. And Chapter 12, verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. The Lord Jesus said that, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. 
And then you also have it back in chapter 13, verse 21, when he is going to talk about that one of his own, one of his hand-selected disciples is going to betray him. And when he announced that, it says it troubled him. So we look there in chapter 13, verse 21, it said, Then Jesus had said thus, he was troubled in spirit and testified, there he is, troubled in spirit, and said, Truly, truly, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. The Lord Jesus Christ was fully God, but he was also fully man, wasn't he? And he had to deal with a troubled heart just like you and I do. But the thing is, he never did it in sin. He never let it overwhelm him, and he dealt with it by putting faith in his Father is how he dealt with his troubled heart. And here's the other thing that I want to talk about is, though, all of these troubles he had, it had to be heavy. He knew what was coming. He's got somebody close to him betraying him. And yet he didn't let his trouble and the trouble that he knew was coming his way keep him from ministering to the troubles of his disciples. So he knows he's heading for the most humiliating, painful, spiritually agonizing experience that any man could ever endure. No man can endure it but the God-man. And guess what? His concern is for who? It's for his disciples. And so we see something there about our Lord Jesus Christ and how he is. He put their concerns ahead of his concerns. And let me say it this way. Jesus was a true friend. Now, I don't mean this in the buddy sense, right? We know Jesus isn't our buddy. But I'm saying in the sense of this, he was troubled. And what happens? You know, we're talking about chapter 13 leading into 14. He's troubled. He's got all this going on. He knows what's coming. And yet... Nobody else is going to wash anybody's feet. And what does the Lord of glory do? It says he takes off his robes and he's the one that goes and washes all of their feet. Now, would you think of doing that if you knew your crucifixion was coming up? I mean, there was zero pride in the Lord Jesus Christ in what he did. No pride of all. When you read these discourses and you read his conversation he has through chapters 13 and 14 and on, I'm saying... He was a friend. They totally respected him. His disciples did, didn't they? But yet they freely talked to him. You read through on your own. But Peter, Philip, Thomas, and Judas, it says not Iscariot, they're asking him questions. He was approachable. He didn't get on their case. Man, that was a stupid question. And some of them really were. But no, he just graciously answered them, patiently answered their questions. So when you have a crisis looming in your life or you have a big thing or something weighing on you, how patient are we when others come and ask us questions like our kids? I mean, it's a temptation to be short with them or short with someone else, right? But the Lord Jesus Christ is not that way. And look what it says here. Here is the way he is. Look in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. And what does it say? Having loved his own which were in the world. What does it say? He loved them till when? He loved them all the way to the end, no matter what he was going through. He always put them first. You know, that's the heart of our Lord. And you think about it. What's one of the first things he did? He's hanging on the cross. In that agony, been beaten. I mean, whatever. And what's the first thing he does in dying that slow, painful death? It says... He saw his mother. He sees his mother, the woman that had nursed him when he was a baby, raised him in tenderness and love. And he has pity on her and seeks her welfare. He doesn't seek pity from her for himself, does he? 
He's looking out for her welfare. And this is what it says in John 18, 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. And then he said to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her unto his own home. And so in his agony, he could have concern for his mother, his disciples, other people. So if you're in here with a problem, do you think the Lord Jesus Christ, now that he's been exalted to glory, is going to be unconcerned about whatever situation you're dealing with in your life? Think about it. We don't see him anymore. We don't audibly hear his voice. We can't touch him. But he is still the same. And if we have doubts, we have fears, we have situations, we have problems in our lives, we can come to him just like they did, and he will answer us. He will answer us. He's never changed. And that's Hebrews 4.16. We can go boldly to the throne of grace and get help in time of need when we need it from the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he tells them, though, he's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled in 14.1. And why is that? Why does he happen to tell them that in 14.1? Because there's a lot going on in that upper room that we see in chapter 13. So there's a lot of tension in that room. There's a lot of questions, a lot of confusions. The first thing he tells them is he says, look, one of you all is going to betray me. And we just read that it troubled him when he said that, and it also troubled the disciples. After he said that, he said, then the disciples, they look one to another. They're wondering, who's he talking about? They're getting upset. Who could this be that he's talking about? And the second thing he says, tells them, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you all can't come with me. you imagine hearing that? If you've been following him now for three years, and Peter says, I don't know where you're going, but I'll go with you wherever you go. Even to the point of death, Jesus looks at him and he says, really, Peter, will you really? You're going to deny me three times before the cock crows, is what he tells him. So think of how distressing all that would have been for those disciples to hear. They're like, man, we thought everybody was loyal to you. We've all been friends. We've been going out doing ministry. And you're saying one of us is a traitor now? Oh, that had to be very, who is it they're saying? Who is it? Because they had no idea. They couldn't tell. Judas did a good job of hiding it. And then he says, then they would have had to be thinking after that. Then he gives them this. So you're going to be leaving and you're going to go somewhere where we can't find you. You asked us to leave everything we had. I left everything, Jesus. I burnt my boat and blew up my bridges to follow you. I've got nothing to go back to. And now you're telling me at this point, you're still a young man. It's not like he's an old guy. And you're telling me you're going to go somewhere that I can't follow you? Mm, that had to be doubly upsetting. And then he adds on to that. Peter, you're talking to Peter. He's the leader of our group. He's got more courage than all of us combined and not always the smartest, but he's the rock. You called him the rock, and now you're saying the rock's going to crumble. So that means something big must be coming our way. What is it? And so they're distressed. They're upset. They're thinking, man, here we are. I thought you are going to bring the kingdom of God in power and now our whole world, they're thinking, is totally falling apart. And at that point, for them, it was. Their world's totally falling apart. And so Jesus gives this command, 14.1. It's a command. It's not a request, but he says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And listen, every single person in this room can relate to these disciples, right? Everybody can relate to it because Everybody has something that's troubling them 
today. And so can you hear the master's words with that? Let not your heart be troubled. He says, don't get stressed out. I've got a solution for you. And it's right there in the second part of that verse. You believe in God, he says, believe also in me. So they'd all been raised as Jews to trust God, the one God, the almighty sovereign God, the one who made a way when there seemed to be no way, parted the Red Sea, gave them the land of Canaan against people and cities that were monstrous. They looked like they had no chance. Helped David defeat the Philistine Goliath, brought the nation back from exile. That would have been impossible. Brought him back, rebuilt the temple. He's saying, trust in that God, the God you've been taught to trust in. He's telling them, look, trust in that God, but also trust in me because why is he saying that? They are one. He'd already been telling them that. There's no difference. And isn't it interesting that he didn't turn it around, that he didn't say trust in me and also trust in God. He said trust in God and then trust in me. So he repeatedly had told them what? The only way that he could work miracles and do the works he did was why? Because he said, the Father is in me. He's working through me. He's given me what to say. He's given me the power to do what I'm doing. I'm just exhibiting the Father to you all is what he's saying. And if you can trust that the Father is working through me and speaking through me, if when I changed water into wine, raised the paralytic, fed the 5,000, walked on the water, calmed the sea, just two chapters before, I raised Lazarus from the dead. If you can believe God is working through me, and how could they not see that? He says, trust in him, continue to trust in him, but you can put your trust in me. They're looking at him. He says, continue to trust in me the same way. Jesus doesn't want them to be troubled or distressed, does he? What does he want them to have? He wants them to have peace. You know how we know that? We're in chapter 14. Look down in verse 27. Look what it says. Because he says the same thing before. When he says, verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you. He says, my peace, he does what? I give it unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. And here he says it again. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. He's wanting them to have peace. He says, my peace I give unto you. You think about the Lord Jesus. He was about the calmest man you'd ever want to meet. I'd say he would have had roots in Kentucky. They seem to be pretty calm people here compared to us northerners up there. And he was a calm person. He never panicked. And I liked what one man said. Peace is the possession of adequate resources. That's when you have peace. When you think you have enough to handle whatever's coming your way, you're going to have peace. And so when you think about it, here are the disciples at the storm at sea. This storm's coming over. These guys are experienced sailors. They know what's coming at them, and they know that they don't have the resources to deal with what's coming their way with this situation, and they are scared, literally scared to death. Master, carest thou not that we perish? We're sinking. We're done. Isn't that what they're telling him? And Jesus knew that he had more than adequate resources. And you know how we know that? He had peace. And you know how we knew that? He's asleep when they're not asleep. And what was the resource he had? What he just told him here. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He's trusting in his heavenly father. He's trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in him. And he just had to speak three words. 
he said the words he speaks, the Father speaks through him, and he's doing everything by the power of the Spirit. Speak three words, and it's over. Peace, be still. Probably two words in the Greek, isn't it, Gene? Peace, be still is the way it happened. And so he says, I want you to have the same peace that I have. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God like I do. Trust in the Lord and believe also in me. Isaiah 26 says this. We know this verse. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Because he trusteth in thee, trust ye in the Lord forever. For in the Lord Yahweh is everlasting strength. And so that's where the peace comes from. Keeping your mind on God. What he can do. All of his promises. All of what you see him do in the Bible. Not on your circumstances. It's simple, but it's not simple, is it? (laughs) It's a battle. It's hard to do. We all know that, right? So there's a famous painting that you can look at online if you want to. It's a pretty cool painting, really. And it's called Peace in the Midst of the Storm. And it's by a guy named Jack Dawson. And it's a picture of this huge cliff rock formation, and there's dark clouds all around it, lightning, rain coming down, water is cascading down. You look at the picture, and if you just look at it without really examining it, it just looks like a chaotic scene. You're thinking, man, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near that. And when you look in the picture near the bottom in a little tiny cleft in that cliff is this seagull sitting on its nest and looks as calm as a cucumber. And that's what that picture is all about. Calm in the midst of the storm. A bird, a bird that is just trusting in its heavenly father in the midst of a storm. So we just need to have the sense of a bird. And some of you are like, well, you already got that. I'm like, thank you. I'll take it. (laughs) Well, listen, that trust in that cleft With all this chaos going on around you, that's the picture we get in 1 Peter. If you would just please turn over there, 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 6. And it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. Why? For he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a little while, he'll make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. That's what happens when you get through a trial. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. But he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That mighty hand of God, it's, it's a humbling thing, isn't it? To be like that little bird. That's the picture. That little bird in that cleft. God's hand is mighty and we need to be humbly trusting him in that mighty hand. Trusting that he's going to make everything right. And he's protecting us. He's watching over us. He'll get us through this trial. Isn't that what we just read at the end of that? Oh, we may be suffering for a while trying to get through this. It's a dark day for us right now. But he's saying, just hang on. Just humble yourself. Just keep yourself under the mighty hand of God. And what does he say to do in there? Casting all your care on him. Verse 7. Isn't that what it says? Because he cares for you. And that casting, that just means throwing something from one place to another. My kids, the school they go to, 
I, I don't know what goes on there, but every day they leave with backpacks. And when I pick the thing up, it is like that. I mean, that thing has to weigh 40, 50 pounds, it seems like to me. I'm like, what? your kids are going to have bowed backs by the time you graduate from this place. But I kid you not, every day they're way down going to school. And they get home, first thing they do, toss that thing off. And that's what that whole thing is, casting your care. It's this thing of you, you're taking something off of you and throwing it onto something else. You're casting that weight of your cares off. And he says what? Cast it off of you and cast it on the Lord. I like this one translation. It says, heave all your anxious concerns upon him. Take them off your back. Don't be carrying those things around. It's like the old story about the guy. He's got that big sack of potatoes on his back and he's walking down the road and the guy stops. It's got a cart. Can I give you a ride? Sure. And he gets on the back of the cart and the guy looks back. Well, he's still got that. He's way down with that sack of potatoes. And he's like, man, why don't you just put those potatoes down and relax? And the guy says, well, I didn't want to add any extra weight to your cart. <laughs> but isn't that the way it is? A lot of times. And the Lord says, no, he's asking us, commanding us, take that weight, take that burden, take all your worry, take all your troubles. Jesus didn't ask us, he commanded us, let not your heart be troubled, weighed down, distressed. God says, cast it over on me. That's what he's saying. So he's telling them, go back to John 14, he's saying, look, he's leaving. But he says, I'm leaving and it's for your good, verses 2 and 3. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. So what is the father's house? The father's house is heaven, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And what he's telling us here is it is a place with a lot of room. So this verse has been misunderstood because when it says mansion, it's not saying everybody's going to have their own individual palatial palace with butlers and maids. Some people may think that that's not what this is teaching you. There is it. <laughs> the word mansion just means a dwelling place. And he's saying in my father's house, heaven, there are many dwelling places, many rooms. That's what he's really saying. I mean, he's saying the house is huge and there's many rooms there. Room enough for everybody in heaven. And so what will your room, or some people like to use the word sweet, what will that look like? I don't know. But I do know this much. When we get there, unlike a suite or a room you stay out now, it won't have to have a bed. You know why? And nobody's going to be sleeping in heaven. And we're not going to have to have shelter because it's going to be perfect weather. Everything's going to be perfect. So I don't know what it'll look like. But I do know it will be perfect. And so... American culture, we've lost this hope of heaven. We're, we're hardly suffering here. But you get over to these other nations where there's severe persecution, I guarantee you the message of heaven and what's awaiting, you'll get a lot of amens and people on their seat. But still, that is still the hope the Bible gives us. So if you would turn back to Revelation 21. Age will do it to you too, you know. Revelation 21, look what it says here in verses 1 to 3. And John writes, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. So those of you that like boats and want to be a sailor, guess what? Your dream's not going to be fulfilled in heaven. I'm not saying there won't be any water there. There will be no more oceans separating the nations. We'll be fellowshipping with the Chinese. Everybody will be fellowshipping. 
in verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. If you look down beginning in verse 9, it says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of seven plagues, and talk with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like a stone most precious, even like jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and had the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel." And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth foursquare, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. It's huge. And he measured the wall thereof an hundred and forty-four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, likened to clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth Sardonyx, the sixth Sardius, and the seventh Chrysolite, and the eighth Beryl, the ninth a Topaz, the tenth a Chrysoprasas, the eleventh a Jacinth, the twelfth an Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold as it was transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we'll continue reading. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. That means no doctors, no hospitals, no psychiatrists, no policemen, no curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And verse 4, this is no small thing. They shall see his face. And his name shall be in their foreheads, 
says it again, there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. What a place. What a glorious place. Nothing like what we know here. Everything will be perfection. It'll be unbelievable to see. It's almost indescribable, and that's just trying to describe it, but I don't think it'll be anything. It's like the Grand Canyon. You can describe the Grand Canyon and say what it's like. You can even look at pictures. But once you get there and see it, it's like, whoa, wasn't prepared for that. Heaven will be a hundred times, a thousand times more than that. But he's saying here there is going to be room for everybody, all of the redeemed. We're not going to be any shortage of space. But the most important thing is going to be back in John 14. So we read there, it says they will see his face. And we read at the beginning when we read in Revelation 21. What is the one thing that's emphasized there? It's that the presence of God, his dwelling will be with men. I'm saying that is the critical thing. And back in John 14, 3, he says this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And to me, this is the critical thing he's saying, that where I am, Jesus is saying, there ye may be also. What are they upset about? They're upset that he is leaving them, his presence. He won't be around them anymore. Isn't that what you really miss about a loved one? You're not in their presence. It's not, it's not the same when you Skype or talk on the phone or write letters. That's poor substitutes, isn't it? You just want to be in somebody's presence. And he's telling them, look, I know you all, you're not worried about having a Donald Trump condo. They're not. They're worried about they're not going to be around him anymore. And he says, look, in my father's house, there's plenty of room. And everywhere you are, my presence will be with you. It's not going to be like these cramped houses that they're having in Israel that we're reading about, right? In Capernaum, they go in there and people are trying to get into the presence of Jesus and they can't. They're all crammed in. They got to bust the roof open to get down in his presence. It's not going to be like that. All of us here, we will see him face to face and we will enjoy his presence when we're getting there in his presence. But what he's telling us here, unlike what we think, Jesus is not a divine carpenter. He hasn't gone off and he's planning, hammering, and nailing as we speak. He's not working up a divine sweat, trying to get heaven ready, working feverishly day and night for the Father's deadline. That's not what he's talking about there. So when he says, lo, I go and prepare a place for you, what's he talking about when he tells them that? He's talking about the work of the cross, the resurrection, and his ongoing intercession. That is what prepares a place for for us because the new Jerusalem it's already exist didn't he already say in my father's house are many mansions many places many dwelling places they're not coming into existence he's not all building them for us right now okay people are looking at me funny so it says this in Hebrews eleven sixteen. but now they desire a better that is a heavenly country therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Matthew 25, 34 says this, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's waiting for us. We have a place waiting for us. Jesus just had to go and prepare the way. He had to die to prepare the way. He had to rise from the dead. He has to intercede for us daily and, or else our place wouldn't be prepared. And so he's saying, 
I'm going away to prepare a place, but I am coming back for you once again to receive you unto myself back in his visible presence. He's saying it will no longer be by faith then. And that was a great encouragement to them. So what it's telling us there in verse 2 when he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. Is he's telling us, one thing is, he's saying, you've got a guaranteed reservation. I mean, anybody that's traveled much, I've had this happen. Have you ever had a hotel room that's supposed to be guaranteed and you get there and it's like, sorry. I literally had that happen. It's like, we don't have anything here for you at all. Like, see if you can find something up the road. Or over books and all these flights seems to be the big thing in the news. Don't want to have a place for you? We're going to take you off this airplane. That's not going to happen. I'll tell you, they're doing all that on the bumping on the airplanes because the airlines have to make a lot of profit. God's not worried about profits. He's guaranteed us a place. This is the question of the ages, though, in Job 14, 14. And this is the question. If a man dies, shall he live again? And that's what Jesus is telling them here. He's giving them an answer to that question. Because like I heard a guy say, the guy said, if I'd have been one of his disciples, I'd have gone up to him and I'd have said, you know, all the miracles, I've seen unbelievable miracles that you've performed. Unbelievable. And the truths that I've heard you say and the anointing on the words you say, it's like nothing that I've ever heard before. But I've got to ask you this. I've got one burning question that I need an answer to. And that is this. Is there really life after death? Is there really a resurrection from the dead? Is that true or is that just a myth? Are you just trying to make me feel good so I'm just not despairing this side of life? And Jesus would look at you. He'd look at you and he'd say, Thomas, I'm going to tell you what. If that wasn't true, I wouldn't make you commit yourself to me and follow me for a myth. Or Wesley, I wouldn't ask you to devote yourself to me for a dream that's never going to come to pass. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's saying it's the truth. We can bank on it. He will come back for us. We're trusting in him no matter how bad it looks. He's going to come back for us. He's going to take us with him and we will forever be with the Lord. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Look over in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's a comfort. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and it says this in verses 13 to 18. Paul writes, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. He says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And so there's great comfort in that, isn't it? I mean, you have somebody, a loved one that you know died in the Lord, you have to ask, am I ever going to see them again? And he's saying, oh, you will. When the Lord comes back, you're not going to go ahead of them. You'll see them then. And from then on, you'll see them. And it's also a great encouragement to us because that means he's going to come and take us back. 
We don't have to wonder whether that's going to happen or not. One day we will literally see Jesus face to face forever. Amen. Amen. And that really is something to rejoice about. And that's what we need to have in our heart. It's a big deal. That heaven is a home already waiting for us. And when you have that ideal in your heart, any earthly setback or affliction you can overcome. You can. That doesn't mean you're not going to have to worry about paying bills, providing for your family. But God says, whatever you encounter, whatever seems to be beyond your control, you can bank on the promise that Jesus says, I love you, I'm going to come back for you, and I'm going to take you with me forever. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God, like the song we sing. Tribulation, famine, nakedness, sword, peril, nothing will separate us from that. And all of those things may come upon us. That's the whole point of this whole thing. Let not your heart be troubled. He's trying to encourage his disciples before he's leaving. Things are going to look like a total disaster, and they will for them. He's just saying, you just need to continue to believe my words. And trust me. Trust what I've said. And trust that one day, all of this is just going to be a distant memory if you hold on to me. Because they had a lot coming on. They had a lot that was coming on. They were going to watch Judas betray Jesus with a kiss. They're going to watch Peter deny the Lord three times and swear as he's doing it. They're going to watch their Lord, this one they've been following, beaten to a pulp and hanging on that tree and die and then be buried. And they need to remember those words. That's why he spoke to them. Don't let your hearts be distressed. You have to keep trusting in me, trusting in what I've told you. He said, I'm only leaving, I'm only going because I've got to prepare a place for you. I've got to die. Don't be troubled. Don't be confused. Don't be disturbed because he says, I'm coming back. I'll receive you unto myself. You haven't followed a false religion. You haven't followed a false message. I will do everything I said. And that's what Jesus said to them. And that's what he's saying to us. Living with him for eternity. Me and Greg were talking the other day and like, that's the thing, isn't it? Isn't it being and knowing that you have God's presence? Isn't that the main thing we should want and desire in this life and the life to come above everything else? When you have that, everything else will work out. And that's what you have. Started to preach a message on Hebrews 11. But when you read about Enoch, he walked with God. Noah, he walked with God. And that fact that they had that presence of God in their lives are what made those men go through. And that's the testimony. God gave them a testimony that they pleased him. And that's what pleases God for us to walk with him and desire to be in his presence. And that comes through our obedience. Let me ask you, we have to look forward to that time. He goes on in John 14. Does that mean they knew nothing of his presence? He said, no. He goes, I'm not going to leave you orphans when I'm gone. Look what it says down in 14, 16. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he says, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever so when we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's verse 18. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. And that's the word that means desolate or an orphan. He says, tells them this. He says, I will come to you. And that's what happens when we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not the same as seeing him visibly manifested face to face. But he is in us. The Lord Jesus Christ personally lives within us. 
It's not just something that we're imagining. And look down in verse 23, what it says there. And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my commandments, keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our dwelling. It's that same word. Many dwellings make our abode with him. So Jesus promises, I'll give you my presence. You'll see me in the future. And I've got a place waiting for you in heaven right now. It's not being built. It is waiting for you. I've gone. I've prepared that place. I've died, buried, resurrected. I'm praying for you. I'll come back. I'll bring you unto myself. You'll be with me forever. And in the meantime, I'm going to come and live inside of you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And that's the blessing of what we have here in John 14. And that's where we're going to stop today. Amen. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Let's ask you to impress upon all of our hearts, no matter what we're going through today, Lord, that there is a joy and a comfort and a peace in knowing, Father, that we can trust in you, that we can trust in you and the Lord Jesus Christ to do all that you said you will do for us. That you'll come and you've lived in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You've not left us orphans. That you will answer our questions that we have, our doubts, our fears. We ask anything. According to your will, you hear us and you give us the answers that we desire. We can know that they'll come to pass, Lord, and we just trust you for all things. And I thank you, Lord, for that promise and for the eternal home that awaits us. I just pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen.